You are listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's podcast, we are very fortunate to have John Parker, who is the author of the Bible of the American Revolution in the South, for the most part. John, tell us a little bit about your book and uh, the genesis of how that project started for you. Well, I, back uh, about 2004, I had some time in between jobs, and I wanted to visit some of the Revolutionary War sites because I lived in Utahville along Lake Marion. And in the process, I discovered that there were no directions and almost nobody had any idea where they were. So I thought South Carolina needed a book that would locate all the sites in the state so people could go see them. Well, I discovered, I in the beginning I thought there might be, oh, maybe 50 or 75 sites. When I got into it, and after about 15 years, I discovered that there are over 600. So the book went from being hopefully 50 pages to being 559. I know your book is in the third series, is that correct? Third edition, right. Third, third edition, and the, the name of the book for our listeners is? Parker's Guide to the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. And it is uh, very widely regarded all across the state uh, as far as historians are concerned. I went up to Musgrove Mills in my own journey of the American Revolution, trying to find some of these sites. And uh, lo and behold, Dawn at, uh, at the state park in Musgrove Mills said, this is the Bible of the American Revolution in South Carolina. And you have done a, a great work. And to the novice or to the inexperienced, you would never expect that many engagements in South Carolina. When you talk about 600, give me a, a parameter of what you mean by that. Well, my book has all the battles, skirmishes, and murders attributed to the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. It has about 600 or 650 different entries. However, a lot of the history in South Carolina is passed down in families and has never been written. So as we get exposure to a lot of the people interested in the revolution, we find more and more different murders or actions, small actions that happened that nobody knows about. So what started out to be just a few pages turned out to be a lot of pages. So John, a lot of uh, interest is in your work and when you go through your book and you're going through all these sites, sometimes the sites, you're, you end up on, a, on the dead end of a dirt road or, a, or just a, a portion of a, a paved road that obviously development and the, and the course of time has changed the, uh, the nature of the environment. How did you come up with some of these sites uh, that, that in your book you say are you know, 200, 300 yards off of the roadway somewhere? Well, the internet was just getting cranked up when I started this. If you put something on the internet uh, and ask Google or whoever, DuckDuckGo, the question, just what happened or where is it, sometimes you get a good answer. Another time, the rest of the time, you have to read the text, whatever's written about it, not just once because you might skip over something that turned out to be important. You have to read it three and four and five times. 
and the text will usually tell you pretty close to where it actually happened. There's another publication by Lipscomb. It was just a little paperback book that he wrote when he worked here at the South Carolina Archives, and that helped me immensely because the last sentence in each one of his entries was, it happened here, and he gave you an approximate place where it happened. So I used that as a guide, and I'd drive to wherever he said it happened or that area, and I'd start knocking on doors until I found somebody that knew what I was talking about. That's how I located some of the places. Other places uh, were located on the old maps, uh, the 1773, 1776, 1783 maps all had names of people and where they lived. So you had to search all of the maps in the area that you were looking for, hopefully to find the name of the person that you're looking for. In some cases it worked, in other cases it didn't. But some of the books tell you the name of some neighbors. So then you look for the neighbors' names on the map. And if you're lucky, you'll find one. So you know you're in the right area. Well, it is a, it's just an amazing work that you've done. If people were to pick up your book, they will find a section in the back of that book on a gentleman by the name of Bill Cunningham. And Bill Cunningham, in the, the last throes of the Revolutionary War from the British side, where they were pushed back into Charleston, he goes on what is famously referred to as the scout. Uh, and you have done a great job in mapping that out. Tell, tell me the genesis of that work. Well, when I was reading all the references, they all mentioned Clouds Creek, which was one place where Cunningham killed everyone. Now, where is Clouds Creek? It was in western Lexington County. Okay. Uh, but all the books said after Clouds Creek, he went here, he went there, he went somewhere else. And they, those are all true. The thing is, in what order did he go to those different places? And all the references for most of those actions attributed to Bloody Bill Cunningham used the date of 11-1781. Well, there's 30 days in November. So by putting all of these locations on a map, I was able to come up with a date for each one that was within a day or two of when it actually happened. And it turned out that Cunningham's route started in Charleston, went to, through Orangeburg to Lexington County, well, modern Lexington County, over to Saluda, Lawrence, Spartanburg, Union, Orangeburg counties, and then back to Charleston. So in all of these, he burned a whole lot of property and killed the people, the person he was looking for, if they were home. If, he wa if they weren't home, he would burn the property, all of it, buildings, crops, outbuildings, everything, scorched earth type policy. These, the people he killed were uh, notorious patriots. They did everything from supply food to the American troops, or they were involved with sequestration, which was taking the property of Tories and giving it, uh, uh, turning it over to the American side uh, for either sale or for use by different patriots. Uh, and some of the people were just his personal enemies. He remembered them from childhood, like uh, Captain Caldwell. 
That was his first military commander when he was on the American side. But about a year or so after that, he changed sides and became a Tory or a British loyalist. How did that happen? I mean, I know that uh, his uncle, I believe, was a, a big loyalist, uh, was big in the community uh, and was, was a big loyal follower of the crown. In fact, I think after the war, uh, did his uncle not still retain his lands after that sequestration based on the fact that he treated everybody upright? But Bill Cunningham obviously did not. Uh, but how did he? How was he on the American side, and and then what caused him to come back over to the British? Well, uh, Bill Cunningham was 19 when he went in the service on the American side. He had an agreement with Captain Caldwell that if he was ever to be sent to the Barrier Islands, John's Island, James Island, or probably Sullivan's Island, that he would be let out of his military service and he wouldn't have to go to the islands. It could be he didn't like the mosquitoes and the other bugs that bite. The poisonous snakes that are a lot more common in swamp, in the swamps along the coast. Or he maybe he just didn't like the ocean air. Well, Caldwell didn't like Cunningham. So he, he sent him to the barrier islands. And of course, he didn't go and he resigned from military service. For that, he was uh, brought up on court-martial, but found not guilty because he had that written into his original enlistment agreement. But it left some hard feelings. Patrick Cunningham was one of his relatives. He was a, uh, turned out to be a general. He was arrested and sent to Charleston, put in prison for a number of months. That upset Bill Cunningham, too. So there are several different reasons why he changed sides. And he became a person that just seemed to like to kill people and cause a lot of pain for people. Uh, he was 19 when he went into the service as an American, probably about 20 when he switched sides, and he died at about 31 in the Bahamas. So he, he only had a brief career in the military, but it was a hard one. On his bloody scout, he couldn't stay in one spot very long because everybody hated him. At Clouds Creek, he killed about 19 or 20 different people. Everybody in their families was looking for Cunningham. They'd kill him on sight. After Bloody Scout, he went back to Charleston. His horse died after they were there a couple of weeks from all the exertion of a month or a little more than a month of riding through and keeping his rider safe. Cunningham buried the horse with full military honors in Charleston. After that, he stole another horse from the Middleton Plantation. Its name was Silverheels. How many people rode with him on that scout? Cunningham never went anywhere without a small army. Most of the time, they numbered 100 to 150 and up as high as 300 men with him. Uh, I do know of one story that I was told that about uh, Cunningham, but it was involved in being just in a buggy and riding through the middle of a town by himself. So I discounted that story because Cunningham never went anywhere by himself. He always had a small army with him. Tell our listeners where Bloody Bill went after his scout. Well, Bloody Bill went back up to uh, Newberry, and the weather at that time was the same as 
it was in 1781, but the date for him going back to Newbury was 1782. That bothered me for a long time, particularly because the name of his horse changed. He was now riding Silver Heels that was stolen from Middleton Plantation in uh, probably modern uh, Dorchester County. Silver Heels was a thoroughbred, extremely fast out in the open. Wasn't real fast in the woods, but if he could get a straightaway, he'd outrun anybody. Uh, anyway, why would Cunningham go back to an area where everybody knew him and everybody hated him and would shoot him on sight? The answer is probably because he was young. Young people don't think they're going to die. They don't think they're about death until they probably hit about 50. So on top of that, he was arrogant. He thought he was smarter than all the Americans. And he had a horse that could outrun just about anybody that would be chasing him. So he did go back in 1782 to low, Lower Newberry County, just north of the Saluda River. Uh, he got into a fight there. His horse managed to outrun Butler that was chasing him. He threw his sword and his gun and everything off of his horse to make it lighter so it could go faster. And sure enough, it did. He outran his pursuer. Then there's not much uh, written about him after that until he went to East Florida, which is St. Augustine. He went to East Florida with uh, where most of the British refugees went. But when he got down there, he continued what he was doing up in South Carolina. He was killing people, robbing them, and just causing general mayhem. The governor of East Florida got tired of it, so they offered Cunningham a pardon of everything if he would go to West Florida, which is Louisiana. The governor of West Florida said, okay, we'll take him. Cunningham did everything he had to do to get the pardon, except go to West Florida. So he continued in East Florida, robbing people and causing general mayhem. So the governor of East Florida wrote to the governor of Cuba. Governor of Cuba said, I'll take him. So he did go to Cuba that time. He and some of his uh, Tory friends from South Carolina were put into jail for a brief period, probably about three months. Then they went back to their old ways, robbing folks and what have you. So the governor of Cuba exiled them to the Bahamas. He moved there and died not too long after he got there. Uh, he did get married probably during the time period he was in East Florida. He did come back to South Carolina and then made a trip over to England to try to get compensation for the property that he lost uh, to the Americans during the war. He was paid about one-tenth of the value that he claimed. And uh, in my book, there is a one a picture in there where, I think it was 1783, where a, a lady from Columbia took an ad in the paper calling him a highwayman and a robber and asked the cops to lock him up, but that didn't happen. Anyway, he got back from England and then went to Cuba and died in, in the Bahamas at about age 31. And he went into the service at age 19. So you can see he had a short life, but it was full of excitement. And he pretty much died and lived the way he wanted to live. 
We know he got married to a Mary Cunningham because in his will he left all of his property to her and she was his executrix. Uh, And if you read the will, it says that it was attested to by several of the other notorious people that fought in South Carolina. It's just a fascinating story. There's one prior to to me reading your book I had no idea about. And uh, so I thank you for that information. It, It enlightened me as to the, uh, the, the problems in the back country, the problems in settling uh, the new country. And Cunningham's story is fascinating, there's no doubt, uh, although full of uh, a lot of despair and, and obviously anger uh, on his part. And from, from the people who were, who were looking to settle the feud with him as well. So. Right. Well, it's a, my book is a surprise to me, too, because I grew up in Delaware. When I came to South Carolina, I had no idea there was any part of the revolution here. Just because I found out there was, and I wanted to visit a few of the sites, that started the research, and the result was Parker's Guide to the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. So you cover all parts of the state, and uh, I think me being an upstate person and, and growing up in the shadows of Kings Mountain, you know, I understand a certain portion of, the, of that history, but you go so far as to talk about even small naval engagements off the coast of South Carolina between South Carolina and Georgia. And uh, I learned about the naval engagements primarily because I knew Dr. E. Lee Spence. He f- was the original f- finder of the Georgiana, which was a, sh- a Confederate ship that sunk off the coast of Isle of Palms. Uh, I help him relocate that oh, probably back in 19, or middle 1970s. Uh, but he published a book, Shipwrecks Along the East Coast or South Carolina Coast. And he had a lot of data in there about where they happened and a little bit about what they happened. So that's where I got quite a bit of the information for the uh, naval engagements. And, of course, they were written in other books. A lot of them were written up in other books, too. I think one of the ones that comes to mind is the a engagement off a of Bloody Point uh, that was named technically after the Yamasee War, but it was a cooperation between the Patriots of South Carolina and the Patriots of uh, Georgia when they realized that the British were getting ready to send a supply ship up the Savannah River. It, it is just information just is almost overwhelming in the in in your book and uh for a historian it's just like a, a cornucopia of of uh, experiences and tidbits and, and checkpoints of the american revolution you go so far as to even talk about where people are laid up in houses in kershaw county in the community of antioch where it's laid up in a house because of uh, smallpox or or some other disease then the patriots realize he's there and they break into the house and, and kill him before he, not taking the chance that uh, he might recover. Where do you come up with that stuff? Well, that was one of the Harrison brothers. And you asked me earlier about an interesting story, so I'll tell you about the Harrison brothers. There were three or four brothers that lived just east of Lynchburg, modern Lynchburg. Uh, there's a bridge over the little Lynch's River there, and they lived along the banks close to where that at that time was a ferry. They were so poor, their clothes and their beds were animal skins. And after the war started, one of them 
got the bright idea, why don't we talk to the British and see if we can fight for them? They'll give us uniforms, we'll have clothes, we'll get a check. So that's what they did. That one was made a colonel. A couple of the other ones were captains. The uh, brother that was killed when he got sick in Antioch, uh, which is just east of Camden, was, was one of the brothers. The one that was a colonel, they used the war for a, an excuse to pillage their neighbors. They'd steal anything from anybody. And the one that was the colonel lived through the war and retired in the Caribbean, uh, Jamaica, I think. And he retired a very wealthy man, all off the backs of his neighbors. Those are stories you don't hear in history. You have taken the time to compile all those stories. I thank you for that. Uh, For our listeners, uh, I'd like to ask you this question. What does liberty mean to John Parker? It means the same as what's in the Bill of Rights, the first ten rights. The freedom of speech, the freedom to practice religion the way you want to, the freedom of assembly, all of that. The Declaration of Independence was the prelude to our Constitution and to the Revolution. In one of the uh, pension applications of a captain from York County uh, related that they were on the way to Florida from South Carolina. They departed uh, over in Edgefield County from the Pinewood House, and they were on their way to Florida. They got down into Georgia about 60 miles at uh, a river when a, a courier was spotted on the other, the north side of the river. So they stopped and wait for the dispatches to get to General Williamson. In that dispatches was a copy of the Declaration of Independence. General Will- Williamson had it read to his officers, and he was so impressed with it, he had it read to everyone in the army and the way they did that they had a captain i believe it was lacy stood on top of a horse that a gentle horse that was led over and held he stood on the saddle so he would be above everyone else they made a hollow square for the horse and he read the declaration to the whole army afterward uh, the person in his application stated there was much firing of muskets and cheering at the reading of the Declaration. John, tell me real quickly how people can get a hold of your latest edition of your book. Uh, They can order a copy from my publisher, which is Harrelson Press in Columbia, South Carolina. They have a website, so if you just type in your search engine, Harrelson Press, or Parker's Guide to the Revolutionary War in South Carolina, it should take you to a place where you can order a copy online. Or you can send me an email at parkersguide at shtc.net, and I'll send you a signed copy. They're thirty nine ninety five each. Thank you so much.